welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gilded Age Jews. They began this period as a small, invisible minority, and ended as the largest and most powerful community of their kind in the world. Overwhelmingly originally of Spanish and German origin, by the end they were almost entirely Eastern European. The Gilded Age was a watershed era for the Jewish community and its leaders in the United States. How did this come about? How did the old-timers deal with the newcomers? How did the Native American residents absorb this incredible increase? And how did American Jews fit into the political and cultural and religious map of this turbulent time? With me to discuss at least some of these issues is Professor Jonathan Sarna of Brandeis University. Jonathan, welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. So let me start with uh, what I now regularly ask my guests about this. Let us imagine a, an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville, or the Jewish version, Benjamin of Tudela, visits the United States at the beginning of our period, around the end of the Civil War, around the middle of our period, say the 1880s and 1890s, and towards the end, with the aim of trying to get a sense of Jewish community life throughout the United States. What would they see? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Uh. It's a wonderful question. They had to come to the United States um, at the end of the Civil War. There would have been a little over 150,000 Jews spread over the country, reaching all the way to California, where, thanks to the gold rush, uh, the number of Jews in the San Francisco area was actually increasing uh, rapidly. Um, one would have found that m many of those Jews were from Central Europe, German-speaking lands, um, and... Uh, uh, a good many of those who had moved west in search of opportunity were merchants of different kinds. Uh, some uh, uh, had, had started out as peddlers and moved up. Uh, others um, uh, founded small stores in places that didn't have them. Growing numbers of Central European Jews had gotten into the clothing trade, 
uh, during the Civil War, especially ready-made clothing, um, the Civil War greatly accelerated uh, the ready-made clothing trade in the United States. And, of course, once the war ended, uh, ready-made clothing continued. And uh, some Jews made very significant fortunes thanks to government contracts uh, and the like. Uh, it wasn't widely noticed in the 1870s as more Jews uh, from Eastern Europe, especially Lithuania, uh, began to come uh, to the United States. Uh, but later one would appreciate uh, how significant uh, that was. And then in 1881, with the assassination of Alexander II, um, uh, pogroms, and especially the so-called May Laws, which place significant restrictions on Jews, uh, one sees East European Jewish immigration uh, beginning to burgeon, to beginning to increase. It would continue to increase decade by decade. And uh, although East European Jews and Central European Jews did not generally live in the same uh, sections of town, uh, the new immigrants lived in the poorest sections, often near the port uh, in um, New York and Boston. Um, uh, uh, Central European Jews, having moved up, lived in better sections. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there was growing awareness of this other Jewish community. Um, they didn't speak German. They spoke Yiddish. Uh, their mannerisms, uh, their uh, world was quite different from that of the Central uh, Europeans. They hadn't uh, any interest, for example, in Reform Judaism. Uh, nevertheless, the two communities knew of their relationship to one another, and the great question was, uh, will, what will happen down the road um, uh, when the East European Jews have children? Um, the, uh, and those children are English-speaking, like the children of the Central European Jews. Uh, nobody quite knew that, but far-sighted people began uh, looking at the numbers and saying, hmm, those East European Jews are going to outnumber us um, sooner than we ever could have imagined. We thought our way, um, uh, what Isaac Mayer Wise called Minhag America, the custom of American Jews, which was increasingly reform. That would be the future, Central European Jews said. And lo and behold, as more and more East European Jews came, uh, 
uh, traditional orthodoxy return. Uh, you had other Jews who were completely secular, uh, but uh, Reform Judaism seemed uh, very alien to them. And, uh, you know, the question was, how would these two communities interrelate? There were those who wanted to give them uh, different names. Let's call one group uh, Israelites, uh, the other group Jews. But that didn't sit well, and that didn't happen. Um, in by the by World War One, um, the East European Jews have indeed come to dominate numerically American Jewish life, even though uh, the leadership was still heavily uh, Central European. Um, by uh, the end of World War One, American Jews who had been uh, what 150,000 um, uh, in 1860, you're going to be more than three million. So the United States is going to be uh, with Poland and Russia one of the largest Jewish communities in uh, in the world, and. Um, uh, those Central European Jews uh, are going to be smaller and smaller in significance. There are individuals who will be important, uh, but overall uh, the numbers are very small. It's kind of uh, an elite uh, Jewish Episcopalianism, and far-seeing Jews like Louis Brandeis had um, reached out to those East European Jews and become a kind of a hero to them. Louis Marshall, uh, the other uh, Jewish lawyer named Louis, um, also uh, became closer to East European Jews and won their respect um, because uh, uh, the two groups understood that to outsiders uh, they were all... Uh, Jews, um, and uh, you know, by by World War One, uh, East European Jewish institutions are central. One other very important uh, difference that is going to take place in this era uh, in eighteen sixty, uh, the United States is seen as a kind of backwater, uh, an unkosher land. Uh, uh, with very uh, little culture, hard to find too many Jewish books, um, a few copies of the Talmud, and so forth. Uh, by um, the end of World War I, uh, American Jewry uh, has uh, become uh, really a center of Jewish culture. Uh, books printed in the United States are sent back to Eastern Europe, partly because uh, that's a way of evading the censor. Um, uh, books in large numbers are, um, are, are not only published in the United States, Jewish books I'm talking about, uh, but by the end of World War I, there are very important Jewish libraries uh, in the United States. And great works of Jewish scholarship, like the Jewish Encyclopedia, 
um, have been published in the United States suggesting that America uh, was going to be uh, the new diaspora center uh, of, uh, of Jewish culture, uh, something that would have been unimaginable uh, 60 years earlier. That's a very good, thank you for that absolutely excellent uh, summary. Um, so now that we have a, a handle on uh, the growth and development and the establishment of the Jewish community at this point, uh, I'd like to uh, focus a little bit back on those people you call the Jewish Episcopalians. Um, because uh, in a previous episode, uh, I interviewed uh, Professor Samuel Goldman about uh, the WASP elite and how they also uh, felt themselves taken at the flood, but nevertheless considered themselves indispensable for the leadership of the country. Um, did the did these old Jewish elites see themselves the same way and indeed take, take notes, notes from, from WASP elites? Elite? I certainly think that they saw themselves the same way. Um, and you can really see that with the founding of the American uh, Jewish Committee um, uh, in, in the beginning of the 20th century. In the early days, it really was a committee um, of the best and the brightest and almost all of, of the members were Central European Jews, uh, the idea really being that uh, maybe they're a minority, but they should be the prime decision makers. They had government ties. Uh, they had money. Uh, they had an understanding of the Jewish and the general uh, worlds. Um, and uh, there, there are very, um, I think, profound parallels uh, to the WASP elite, the difference being that the WASP elite um, is going to lose confidence in its ability, so to speak, to assimilate uh, the immigrants and going to withdraw and you can really see that in the difference, say, between President Eliot of Harvard, who has uh, an enormous amount of confidence in the ability of the WASP elite to bring in these newcomers and turn them into cultured good Americans, and his successor, uh, President Lowell of Harvard, who believes that um, they were being overrun uh, by immigrants and uh, who introduces quotas uh, to make sure uh, uh, that um, uh, people of his type will still um, uh, be in the majority. In the Jewish community, we don't see that happening uh, really, um, instead, I think uh, more and more we see members of the old Central European elite learning how to work uh, with East Europeans and 
vice versa. Uh, while uh, in some places, New York is an example, um, uh, there remain significant differences. So in New York, uh, you have uh, kind of two uh, charities, a domestic charity uh, that is um, the Federation that's mostly run by Central European Jews, and then um, uh, you, you have uh, international uh, charities that are, are really dominated by East European Jews, and, and they'll only merge around the Yom Kippur War. Uh, but that is, is seen as um, uh, unusual, and in other communities, Boston uh, would be an example of that, uh, the merger takes place much uh, earlier. Um, uh, you know, each community is uh, different depending often on the uh, proportions and power of the two groups. But ultimately, um, everywhere, uh, there is a kind of a merger. Um, uh, we we don't often realize the extent to which the Zionist movement uh, helped bring in some Central European Jews to work with East Europeans uh, because the movement was so popular with East Europeans. So Central Europeans who converted to Zionism, Louis Brandeis, again, is a famous example, but there were many others, including some leading reform rabbis, uh, eventually Abel Silver is East European, and, 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 and uh, Stephen S. Wise. Um, uh, these Jews are going to work heavily uh, with, um, uh, with the East European community. And uh, the old central... European so-called Yahudim, they're going um, to find their power somewhat diminished. Uh, in many cases, their own children will marry into uh, the East European Jewish community. In other cases, they will intermarry and, and some uh, will disappear from the Jewish community. Um, um, and in still other cases, um, the, the um, uh, children will not marry at all, uh, not wanting to marry non-Jews, unable to feel comfortable with East European Jews, somewhat too familiar with their own small group, uh, astonishing uh, rates of singleness. Uh, among the German Jewish elite, and of course, um, uh, they will disappear. A good example would be the Gratz family, uh, so prominent at one time uh, and so significant, and between intermarriage and singleness, um, uh, uh, they, they more or less disappear. Um, as uh, as a force in Philadelphia. Um, finally, 
It's hard to be a German Jew in America in World War One. America, of course, um, uh, sees Germany as the enemy in World War One, and much of the German cultural milieu that had sustained Central European Jews, whether it was names or song or novels or, or drama, um, becomes uh, something uh, to be ashamed of, to hide uh, during World War I. And uh, in many ways, um, uh, there is uh, what a new book called calls the Great Disappearing Act, uh, where um, German Americans of all kinds, Jews among them, um, mute their Germanness, and um, uh, that will only be further reinforced in the 1930s when so many non-Jewish German-Americans uh, become pro-Hitler uh, in the Bund, uh, which is, we now know, heavily supported uh, by uh, the Nazis. And, of course, Jews recoil from that, separate uh, completely from the old German uh, non-Jewish elite and, and the sustaining elements of, uh, of the German Jewish civilization um, really disappear um, uh, or largely disappear uh, in in the popular German Jewish um, uh, community. Wow, that's a lot to take in. So, in addition to uh, the changing relationship and eventually the disappearance of what we uh, call the Yeka Jews uh, here in Israel. Um, I thought I might expand our horizon a little bit to um, outside the Jewish community. We talked about relationships inside. Let's talk about outside. Um, this was a very turbulent time uh, politically. People were strongly debating about uh, the importance and power of capitalism. Uh, how much should it be restrained? How much should it be let free? Uh, people were strongly debating during Reconstruction and, and, redem and Southern Redemption uh, the uh, the rights or the taking thereof from black Americans. Um, and nowadays, every people are used to the idea that Jews are overwhelmingly uh, what we understand as modern liberal in the sense that they're very progressive on or generally progressive on economics, very progressive on culture. Um, was that very much the same uh, in this period or were there differences of opinion? Um, it's totally different, uh, it seems to me, in, in this period. I don't think anybody imagined uh, that Jews were overwhelmingly of one party in, um, uh, in this period, and all the data that we have suggests uh, that Jews were divided uh, politically uh, um, between the two parties, both parties in some ways vying uh, for Jewish uh, voters. There are important moments. Thus, the 1896 election, 
when William Jennings Bryan uh, says, I will not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, spooks uh, Jews. And all sorts of liberal Jews abandon the, de the uh, Democratic Party and move into the Republican ranks, which seems to them um, less radical, much safer, more secure, and uh, so forth. Um, then, um, uh, in really the 1912 election is quite fascinating because you see Jews divided, um, and, and uh, openly so for the first time, um, between the Republican Party, Louis Marshall, uh, of the American Jewish Committee remains staunchly committed to Taft, um, and uh, Taft had a lot of Jewish friends. Others, um, like Oscar Strauss, will support the third-party candidate, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who was immensely popular in Jewish circles. Um, but all sorts of people were greatly attracted, including Louis Brandeis uh, and Stephen Wise, are greatly attracted to Woodrow Wilson, uh, the Democrat, um, and, and they move into his camp. And it's well to say that although African Americans correctly view Wilson as uh, one of the most racist of our presidents. Uh, he was a Southerner. He was deeply biased against um, African Americans and would remove as many as he could from government service. Jews were in love with Woodrow Wilson, who was a philo-Semite, who was going to appoint um, uh, the first Jewish justice uh, to the United States Supreme Court, Louis Brandeis, and has other Jews working for him. Um, and, and so uh, that brings some Jews back to the Democratic Party. Uh, it's really not until uh, uh, the, the 1928 election, probably, uh, that we see Jews in much larger numbers uh, moving into the Democratic camp, and of course, Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, is going to cement uh, uh, the idea uh, that that Democrats and Jewish socialists could all join together under his banner, and uh, amazingly. Uh, it's estimated that 90% of Jews voted for Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, astonishing, really, that 90% of Jews ever agreed on anything. Uh, but they did agree on him. It's only much later that when we learn more about Roosevelt's role in uh, keeping uh, Jews out of the country... Uh, who had nowhere to go and therefore were uh, murdered in the Holocaust, um, that, that his image changes. But uh, during his lifetime, 
he was immensely popular, and for a long time afterwards, um, uh, we see uh, Jews voting Democratic uh, to an overwhelming uh, degree, and even today, the Democratic Party often will get uh, as much as 70% of the Jewish vote. Okay. Um, so to, to end off, uh, at the end of our period, there seems to be both victory and defeat. On the one hand, uh, Jews have become an incredibly successful, increasingly integrated community in American life. Uh, they're larger, they're increasingly wealthier, uh, they, as you said, they become a cultural beacon. Uh, and even for those who are Zionists, the Balfour Declaration has opened up vistas of hope. And on the other hand, um, the Warren Harding and the Republicans are brought into power in 1920, overwhelmed, crushing the Democrats in one of their worst defeats probably in their entire history. And they pass a series of laws that effectively cut off uh, any realistic uh, increase in Jewish immigration to the United States, meaning that now uh, Jews are going to have to maintain their own, uh, uh, they're going to have to mostly get on, get off on their own steam. How do they deal with the fact that now they're really on their own and need to uh, focus, focus on, uh, on their own? <laughs> I think there is a realization that the world has changed. Uh, uh, the Immigration Act is 1924, but the truth is that even earlier the handwriting was on the wall. On the one hand, I think there was a sense on the part of the community that the future was theirs to build. The Stettlach had been destroyed in World War I. We tend to forget the impact of World War I because of World War II, but a lot of the hometowns that Jews came from had been destroyed. There was a massive philanthropic um, um, outpouring. The American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee founded in World War I that suggested this role of American Jews in keeping alive uh, the Jewish communities of Europe, which of course uh, gave them great uh, power. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, there's a huge shift uh, to English, and at some point, uh, the majority of the American Jewish community in the, already in the 1920s, at some point, the majority is native-born. And that's a kind of turning point, because uh, for a century earlier, the majority uh, had uh, been immigrants. Um, Whereas in the immigrant period, the question was, can we turn these immigrants uh, into Americans, good Americans? Uh, now the question is, can we turn these American children of immigrants into Jews? Can we preserve them in the Jewish community, especially 
as so many um, of those young people seem to be alienated from uh, traditional synagogues, and we will see various efforts to uh, reshape uh, the synagogue. The most famous will be Mordechai Kaplan's uh, various ideas um, uh, that the synagogue should become a kind of cultural center, community center uh, for Jews. Uh, so uh, a shul with a pool, and some will come to pray and some will come to swim, but both will be within a Jewish setting. It's also very important to notice that anti-Semitism very dramatically rises in the 1920s. The famous example is uh, Henry Ford, but by no means alone, and will rise even further in the 30s. Uh, the famous uh, example is Father Charles Coughlin, the radio priest. Um, and that is also going to remind American Jews of uh, the fact that uh, even though they are Americans and speak English and have had uh, have been totally acculturated, they are not identical uh, uh, to uh, white folks uh, in America. Uh, and indeed, they often don't live near them either. They tend to live, uh, even those far removed from religious life, uh, tend to live concentrated uh, with other um, with other Jews. And that's really the story of the interwar years. You do have Jews who, especially in the 20s, who move up very dramatically economically. Lots of money is made. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, there is um, anti-Semitism and uh, a real concern um, and experimentation uh, about how the next generation will be kept Jewish. Uh, a, a growing uh, investment in modern forms of Jewish education, uh, which will continue in the post-war, and a lot of the seeds of post-war developments are actually planted in those interwar years, um, um, uh, which will lead in the post-war era um, uh, to American Jewry becoming um, the most powerful and the most significant uh, of all the diaspora Jewish uh, communities um, uh, in the world. Okay. Uh, I think that that's more than enough for now, uh, although I definitely hope to be able to bring you on uh, another opportunity. Professor Sarna, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Delighted to be with you. Bye-bye.